Let's pick up where we left off. We've been talking about this idea of an identity crisis and how we have one in the church. And that looks like different things to different people. And the thing is, is we've got to begin to ask the question, what does it even mean? What does a believer look like? So we've, we've drilled down on these definitions of what identity is. It's a collective aspect of our set of characteristics by which a thing is definitively recognizable or known. It's a behavioral or personal characteristic by which an individual is recognized as a member of a group, and it's the quality or condition of being the same as something else. And we're really focused on one thing. Now, we could, I mean, you could do this with anything. People look, did you guys ever see the movie Grease? Right, you had the T, was it the T-Birds and the, what was the other one, the pink ladies? Pink ladies, is that it? Pink jackets, what they were. They weren't pink, the jackets were pink, right? But as soon as you saw them, you knew what group they were in. Or we could do, I mean, we could mix it up for you all, the Jets and the Sharks, anything. Too many musicals, I understand, I'm not a fan either, so. But the thing is, is like there is something that makes people stand out and unique, and the question comes down to is what is that for us? Not as a church, but as the body of Christ. What does the body of Christ look like? What does the body of Christ talk like? What do they act like? Where are we when it comes to this? And the problem we have is we don't know. Every phase of life is dictated by what you believe is true. What you say is true and how you act are not necessarily the same thing. Because Jesus even said they come near to me with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. So that means you can say things but not really believe it. What you believe is dictated by how you act. If you're not afraid of heights, then you'll get up on high stuff, right? And you can tell me you're not afraid of heights, but when it's time to get on high stuff... We'll know for sure, right? You could say, I'm not afraid of spiders. Pull out a spider, let's find out. I'm going to tell you all this briefly, but I come into the office pretty early in the morning, and so I got here, I don't know what day of the week it was, a Wednesday, a Thursday, I don't even know. And I'm in my office, and about six, and I get up, about 6.30, I walk out to go get a cup of coffee, and there facing me is a snake sitting right outside my office door, staring at me in this building. That's correct. I don't know where he got in at. I'm assuming he followed me through the back door. I don't know, but I did what every normal American person would do today. I took a picture of it, and I sent it to my wife. I said, look what I found. So I went over there. He wasn't a big snake. He's just a little guy. You know, he's just, he just hanging out. He's looking for some advice, I suppose. I don't know. And I picked him up and put him in a box, and I took him outside, and he's free to roam. And I showed Paul a picture of it that later that day, and Paul's like, I wish you hadn't shown me that. I said, why is that? He's like, now I've got to find a new church. <laughs> so it's possible we've been accused of snake handling here before. I don't know, but now, we've, now it's for real. But again, you can say you're not afraid of something until it comes time to pony up. My, my little sister, I may have told you this story, so forgive me if I have. But, you know, she'd always talk about how brave. She was 10 years old. She's brave. She's not afraid of nothing. She's a girl. Don't need guys. Nothing like that. She wanted to mow my grass. And I had this old craftsman riding lawnmower. And she wanted to drive that thing in the worst way. And finally I said, all right, go ahead. And my brother-in-law and I were working across the street at a house. That, it was a little rental house that we had. And we were doing some stuff. And all of a sudden, I hear the mower backfire. So we walk outside. There's the mower in my yard. My sister's nowhere to be seen. So I'm thinking, what happened? Did she fall off? Did what? I have no idea what's going on. So I, we go back over to the house. She's standing inside. She appears to be okay, but a little shaken. And I said, 
what happened? Are you okay? She's like, I saw a snake. And I'm like, okay. So I got off the mower and I ran inside. I said, do you realize that you were sitting on a snake-killing machine? And you jumped into the snake's territory to get away from the snake. And she's just like, I know that now. You know, the thing is, is that we, we react in fear. Is it really a big deal to see a snake when you're sitting on something running at 3,000 revolutions per minute with sharp blades? No, it's not. But we react because that snake's going to eat us and the mower. Because that's what we really believe. It's no different than if you are claustrophobic and you get on an elevator, it's not going to crush in and, and destroy you. But yes, that's what's going to happen. You see, that is where we are. What you believe will dictate how you act. And so the question is, is what should a Christian look like? A born-again believer. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If we believe that, it should dictate the way we act, the way we respond. No matter what we see on the news or what our home life is like at the moment, it doesn't make any difference because we are a new creation. We were dead, we're now alive, God has made me new, and my identity lies in Him. But that's not the reality. You see, I've written these words up here, we've been talking about this justification and sanctification. Understanding the difference between the two. When we look at justification, it is justified, never sinned. This is the work in which that God has made us right. Sanctified is the part that comes after that, where we begin to look like Him. So when we're a new creation, the old that is gone is that old man because God has restored us. So when we look at this, this is the interactive portion of the program, guys. Who does this? God does. Beautiful. Well done. What did you do for it? Nothing. Isn't that nice? It's so nice. It's kind of like when the government sends you a check. You didn't do anything for it. You sent in three times that amount, but whatever. Sanctified. Who does that? You. So there's two different parts here. Now, obviously, the Holy Spirit has a part to play in that. Don't misunderstand me. But the thing is, is we've got to get this. You didn't do this. But once you're here, now it's time to step up. Because this is where how you talk matters, how you act matters. If you truly are an ambassador for Christ, you need to represent Him. You see, there's a misunderstanding, and we've got to get this. The Ten Commandments, thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. We have equated that to, in this country today, is that don't use the Lord's name as a curse word. And that is good advice, but that's not what that means. Because the nation of Israel, chosen by God, were set apart, and he says, don't take on my name, my characteristics, my representation in vain. Don't take that lightly. Because if you're going to accept my covenant, don't take that lightly. It means something. And we've changed it around. You see, we don't even know what it is that we believe. In today's world, honesty is called violence. Enabling delusion is called empathy. And expressing narcissism is called bravery. And this is the world we live in. And that has creeped over to the church. We feel enlightened. It's the Bible studies where you read a passage and you're like, what does that mean to you? And what does that mean to you? And we've all bought into this mantra, and the truth is we don't care. I don't care what you think it means. I care what the guy who wrote it meant. Fair enough? Too harsh? We're doing okay. We can get more coffee and donuts going around if it'll help. 
So, if I ask you this question, I want, your, I want you to give me some answer. What is the marker of a born-again believer in this world? In other words, what is it that you can expect being a born-again believer? What do we, what do we, give me something. I'll give the first one. This is what we always see. Love. Love. Beautiful thing. But what else? Joy? There you go. Peace. Are we going to do the fruit of the Spirit? Are we going there? Is that what we're doing? We're above that, y'all. Long suffering. No. Somebody else. Awareness. Okay. You got a short way to put that? Non-vindictive? Y'all heard that, right? I'm not writing that. It's a good answer. I have just a lot of words, and I'll misspell one of them. Acceptance? Is that what you said? I just make sure I heard you. Acceptance. Okay. Anger. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Might tell us a little bit about Jim there. I don't know. What do you got, bud? Hope. That's a good one. Oh, good, good answer. Good answer. Where's Steve Harvey when you need him? Right? Anybody else? Kindness. Good. Good. Yeah. We can do this all day, right? And what's crazy is when you read Scripture, it's not that these are wrong answers, but the most close answer is this one right here. Way to go, Jim. <laughs> Rock star over. He preached. He's getting it. I mean... This is the Jim Clodfelter show. Think about this. The word that some of y'all as, as should have picked up on is this one right here. Hate. Now, I know that sounds crazy, but bear with me for a minute. Because what is the marker of a born-again believer in this world? These are maybe characteristics that we share, including this one. But what is the marker? Let's go to John chapter 15. Verse 18. I read part of this last week. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. If, but all these things they will do to you for my namesake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law. They hated me without cause. What did Jesus just tell us? We should be hated by this world. Is the church today hated by the world? Part of it. So what has the church done in response? We've changed to the world. Think about this. You see, this isn't the first time we've seen this. This has been going on for centuries. But there was a time where Bible-believing Christians, who were also happened to be scientists, believed that the earth was young. 
The idea of it being millions and billions of years old was a, was a very minor position. And then comes this Charles Darwin guy. And Charles Lyell and a few of these other guys. And they came in there and they began to say, you know, it appears to us that the earth might be older than what we initially thought. And science began to get out and say, you know, okay, well, look at this. And you've got the rings of the trees and you've got the layers of soil and all of this other stuff that was going on. So what was the church's response? Well, okay, so the Bible says, you know, in six days, but those aren't literal days. Those are expanses of time. They took the world's theory and crammed it into Scripture. We've done that time and time again. Same thing with evolution. Do you realize that theistic evolution is a modern theory? The idea that while evolution took place, God had his hand in it and forced it to, take, to happen. Why did, did the church adopt that? And there are the, uh, uh, seminaries that teach this. They've done that because, well, this is what science says. And we have to make sure that science doesn't leave the Bible behind. The last time I checked, this doesn't need your help. It doesn't. I know that sounds crazy. Because what happens is, in here lies truth. Why is it truth? Because God spoke it. God himself is truth. And if God spoke it, it's true. And what do we do? We stand on that truth. Do you know what we don't do? Apologize for it. I'm sorry you don't like it. I didn't write it. It's kind of like your kids. You lay out some ground rules. They don't like those ground rules. Oh, I'm sorry, when you own your home, you can make up your own. So here's the thing, and if this was Mormon, it would work for you. When you have your own world and planet, you can make up whatever rules you want. But this one belongs to God. And God set the standard, and we just simply believe the standard. So because of that, what happens? The world hates us. That's a problem. Because you know what we don't like? To not be liked. We try really hard to sugarcoat everything. Look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them. Now, Jesus sent out the 12, okay? Do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, that's interesting. Don't go to the world and don't go to the half-Jews. Leave them out. You're going to Israel and Israel alone. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you've received, freely give. Now that's interesting he said that, because these are a commandment, not a suggestion. Fair enough? This is your responsibility. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You should be preaching that and doing all of these things. He didn't say, if it's my will, go ahead and do it. He said, just go do it. Right, Jim? Verse 9 says, provide neither gold nor silver nor, nor copper nor money, your money belts nor bag for your journey nor two tunics nor sandals nor staffs for a worker is worthy of his food. Now whatever city you, or town that you enter, inquire who in it is worthy and stay there till you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from the house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now, those are like really bad words in today's culture. Do you know why? 
Because you go into a house and you're going to judge whether they are worthy to hear the message that you have. And if they're not, leave them. Don't beg them. Truth was preached. It wasn't their job to convince them. It was their job to preach to them. Pretty judgmental if you ask me. Whoever doesn't receive your words, you just get out of there. Shake the dust off your feet. You've got to understand that was a terminology that was used then. You forget about them. Move on to the next one. Kind of hateful. Verse 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless of doves. And now that's interesting because where did he send them? To the people of God. And they were wolves. So the ones with the truth were the sheep. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before the governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, don't worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Again, we see this. What's going to happen? Oh, they're not going to like your message, and they're going to take you, and they're probably going to beat you. They may even kill you. Don't worry about it. You'll be fine. What do we do? Maybe if we soften this a little bit, they'll listen to it. Maybe if we entertain them a little more, they'll at least maybe hear the gospel. You see what we have done as the church? Let's go on. Verse 21, now brother will deliver up brother to death and father his child and children will rise against his parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city... Flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, again, what do we see here? You will be hated. For what? For the name of Jesus. If you're not hated by somebody today for the message you stand and the life you live, you're doing it wrong. Fair enough. He who endures to the end will be saved when they persecute you in this city. Don't beg them. Move on. Those are harsh words. This is not what we typically hear in fact, it's probably not what you thought you'd hear today. You were hoping for something a little bubblier. Verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. But if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, don't fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. In other words, don't worry about what they say. They literally told Jesus that he was operating under the power of Satan. What do you think is going to happen to us? It's the same thing, but we don't like it. It might affect our friendship. It might affect our family. It might affect our business. And you know what Jesus said? Don't worry about that. I told these guys, don't take anything with you. Verse 27, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold from a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are more valuable, of more value than many sparrows. So we don't fear them, we preach to them. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I also will confess before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, him I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Now that one really didn't need God's help. 
A man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. These are pretty powerful words, guys. We're way too worried about what people think, including family members. I have watched people just compromise after compromise for their adult children, just hoping maybe they'll come along for the ride. Guess what? It's not going to work. We're trying to be loving, but in reality, we are hating them because we're not telling them the truth. We sugarcoat things to the point that it may be too late before we finally get around to being real. And that's the world we live in today. Look at this picture. It doesn't take very long to find this. This is Jesus, or a depiction of Him. May loving kindness abound. You see, this is the Jesus that the world worships. The all-inclusive, all-loving Jesus who would never hurt a fly. He loved you the way that you are. He embraces you the way that you are. You just be you because God made you that way. If that were true, that Jesus' death was unnecessary. But this is the Jesus that we want. We want Him to just love us how we are and just put up with our shortcomings. And the problem is, is that He gave you a way out we're choosing not to take. And this is the Jesus represented in the church today. Some of you grew up in a time where you heard nothing but fire and brimstone. You were going to hell for everything. If you ordered wrong at lunch, you were going to hell. I mean, it was... And then we came to the opposite end of that. You're not going to hell for anything. There's no hell. Just make believe. Somebody dies, heaven gains an angel, they're in heaven, they're in a better place, they're smiling down upon us. I wish that were true. God will never force somebody into their heaven, into His heaven against their will. You see, the thing is, if we as a church don't know who Jesus is, how can we know who we are supposed to be? Because the Jesus I'm showing you is the Jesus being preached predominantly. Some will say, yeah, okay, fine. You've got Buddha and all these other gods that are back there. Maybe not. You've got to go through Jesus. But don't worry. Jesus loves you and he embraces you the way that you are. Be who he made you to be. We worship ourselves. We don't worship God. We all worship the same God. We just call them by different names. We've got all these things that are out there. You may have seen the bumper sticker that says coexist. You guys seen that? It's got all the different religious symbols. Just get along. I've seen posts by people in this town that are talking about, you know, they'll see something like that and they say, I want my children and my grandchildren to be able to decide for themselves. I don't. I want my children and grandchildren to know the truth. They can decide what they want. But they won't get there by not knowing what the truth is. It'd be no different than if you don't believe in gravity, I want you to know the truth. Because when you find out that gravity's real, it's going to hurt. We've got to get back to being exactly what Jesus said we should be. But how can we do that if we don't know who we are and who He is? How can we know what we're supposed to do? How can we know what we're supposed to say? There has to be a standard, and yet we've gotten away from that. 
In 1 Peter 2, verse 9, it says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now a people of God, who had obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. The thing is, as we look at this, okay, you had Israel and the rest of the world. Israel was God's chosen people. If you weren't in that, you weren't chosen by God. But, good news, you could become that way. You could reject all your gods, all your heritage, leave the place that you lived, and come and be one with Israel, enter into covenant with Yahweh, go underneath the commandments, circumcise yourself, and then you are just like you were born there. And here comes Jesus. And he says, hey, the world's going to hate you, but they hated me first, so it's no big deal, we're in this together. And now the separation is no longer Jew and Gentile, but saved and everybody else. But just like back then, we want to muddy the waters. Well, where is that, that, that caveat? Where's that line at? We've got to get back to preaching truth. Nothing has changed. The difference is that we weren't once a nation, now we are. We are the people of God. Those who are born again. Inside of the priesthood was a separation even further with rules and stipulations and even further than that to get to the high priest. And now we all are one with him, serving him. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now in return for the same I speak to children, you also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part is a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. You will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So he separated us, now let's cleanse ourselves. But we don't want to do that. We want to just walk that line, oh, it's okay, I can do this, God understands. Oh, don't be a legalist, don't act like that, it's okay. This is the world that we live in. We have gotten away from holiness, understanding what Jesus has done for us, that separated us. You'd have never seen a Levite performing and acting the way that we do today. Because they understood the consequences. And the consequences for getting it wrong was immediate death. Imagine if that was us today, how we would act. We would act completely different. But that's not the case. Yes, we're under grace. But that grace isn't so that we can just do whatever we want. That grace is so that we can walk in the fullness and power of the Spirit of God being His representative on the earth. Because the strength we need comes from above. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7. It says, now therefore, it is already an utter failure for you to go to the law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Or why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Those things you were, now you're not. Stop acting like it. It's talking about why do you go to the world to solve your problems? 
What do we do today when things get rough? We turn to some worldly mechanism because we act as if God is not enough. We're always looking for something more. I read this last week, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20. You were bought at a price, and therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Understanding the context, we were talking about a time in which people were bought and sold. And so a master purchased slave from other masters, and it issued a change in ownership for this slave. And God purchased these guys from slavery to sin and death. And through what Jesus did, they now belong to God. They are set apart. They are different. They now have a brand new start. And yet we want to play with our old stuff. Because the truth is, is we don't want the Jesus of the Bible. We want the Jesus of our culture. We want the Jesus that, yeah, he saved us and that's good, but I can do what I want and be how I want and say what I want and act how I want and not worry about the consequences because we're under grace and not the law. Galatians chapter 2 verse 19 says, For though I through the law died to the law that I might live to God, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Now, what he's getting at here is that the law died, I might live to God, I have been crucified with Christ. This is a literal thing. Why? Because we saw in Ephesians last week, we're going to read it again, that Christ is the head, seated at the right hand of the Father. We are the body. Where are we? Right there with Him. Okay, it's not a floating head up there. This is how this goes. But he is getting at the point that the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. It has been crucified. It now represents Him. It's no longer I who, my desires, my wishes, my will. It is now all about what He wants from me. And imagine what would happen if we began to do this. One example I often give is, is the argument about what a family looks like because we don't even know, right? It's, it's basically a couple or a thruple or I don't know how, how the upples work after that, but it can be whatever you want it to be. You see men in other countries marrying robots and I don't know. I, here's what I know. I remember as a kid, did anybody watch Pee Wee's Playhouse? Anybody? Am I alone? It's okay to admit, yes, I know. We'll have a, a group session afterwards, okay? But I'll never forget this as a kid. I'm watching this on Saturday morning. Don't go back and watch this, please, for the love of all that is holy. You're above this. But he loved fruit salad. So he wanted to marry fruit salad. You, do you remember this? You watched it? Yeah? So they did a wedding ceremony where he married a bowl of fruit salad. Who knew Pee Wee was so far ahead of his time? Because why not? You love it, you might as well marry it. Me would be like brisket or something, but whatever. He's talking about being separated, right? The argument against the family is like, well, what's it hurt if, if a same-sex couple gets together? How does it affect you? And it's like, well, what if we just simply followed biblical principles when it came to sex and marriage altogether? Would it not solve a lot of the issues? Because you wouldn't have sexually transmitted diseases. You wouldn't have fatherless homes. You wouldn't have all these problems that go on today if we just simply did that. Like, can't we just go with that? It would solve a lot of those problems if we just follow this. What if we just began to act like Christ actually paid for us in the flesh that we live in today? We live to the glory of Him. How would our actions differ? How would we look at things? How would we talk? How would we respond? Would it be different? James chapter 4 verse 1, For where do wars and fights come from among you? 
Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and coven cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinner, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. That's not an exciting passage. But we submit to God, we resist the devil, he flees from us. You want to be a friend with the world, that's fine, but now you're an enemy of God. You see, we do this all the time. The Christian life has certain disciplines set aside to it. It kind of comes with it. We pray, we read our Bible, we worship, we go to church, we fast, we give. And we all do it because we love and we have compassion and because God has set it up. But we don't know a lot of the reasons why, but all we know is if we just do this, it'll probably be okay. And the thing is, is the further in that we get, the more excuses we'll make of why we don't need to do this stuff. Like what would happen to a born-again believer who if they just took some time every day and read their Bible and took some time every day just to pray and periodically spent some time fasting and seeking the Lord and made it a point to be at church when they could, to go in there on Sunday mornings and maybe Wednesday nights or whenever else. If there's a prayer meeting, I'm probably going to attend. What would happen if we turned our TV off at home a little bit more and turned on Christian music and just worshiped God in our home? What would happen to our children if instead of freaking out on them all the time, we just lovingly embraced them and said, let me explain to you why you're an idiot right now. Because that's basically what Jesus did. What would happen in our world? What would happen in our families? It would begin to look different, wouldn't it? When everybody else is freaking out, we're standing there like, I got nothing to fear. What would happen if we began to look like this? If we submit to God, we resist the devil, he flees from us. If we draw near to God, he draws near to us. You see, that's the part we leave out. We expect God to chase us around. He's there waiting. But if we draw near to him, he draws near to us. Who starts it? We start it. Who resists the devil? You do. Who submits to God? You do. That means you don't have to. You choose to. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. I'm almost done. Therefore, I also, after I heard your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, far above all principality, power, might, dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. So who's his body? The church. And what is the church? The born again believers. 
And you we made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the other. So we were all once there, right? We were all worldly after the prince of the power of the air. Everything in this world is under one course. And what is that? The enemy. Contrary to God, we were all once there. But now, God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of worse, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them what is going on christ is the head we are his body he's above all of that and so are we because we are his body and the problem his body has gone rogue some of you feel the same way there was a time in life where you could eat whatever you want and didn't gain a pound and now if you walk through a bakery you're three pounds heavy or by the time you get to the exit my wife baked cookies once i smelled them i need a bigger pants it's not fair there was a time in life where you could do any athletic sport, anything out there, and you didn't pay the price the next day. That's not true anymore, and you younger folk will know that feeling someday. There was a time you could sit in a chair and get out of a chair without grunting. Those days are over. This is the world we live in today. It's a rule. You see, we have gotten away from what God has done. If we are up here with Him, then why do we act like we're defeated down here? Our flesh does not represent the body of Christ. The things of which we once wore. Uh, this is the way of the world. Why does the church want to be so closely associated with that? Why do we just want to go as far as we can without going over that proverbial line? Why do we push it so hard? The reality is, is because we don't want to be hated. We want to have fun. We want to be able to do what we want. We want no consequences for our actions. Therefore, we will just do whatever we want to do. That is why you have so much confusion in the church today. That you have churches embracing lifestyles that are contrary to God. We didn't make those up, right? We're not the ones sitting there saying, oh yeah, God doesn't want that. That's bad. It'd be a lot easier if you just said, yeah, do whatever you want. We could be like, yeah, do whatever you want. That's what he said. We'll just go with that. But the problem is, is God set a standard. A standard by which we live by because we are no longer the sons of this world. We are now the sons of God. We are his body. And his body is really confused. Because we don't stand on truth. The truth is, is that the standard that God has set is designed by him for us to represent him on this earth. In the church today, you've got young couples living together, don't think anything of it. You've got same-sex couples in the church, serving in the church and all of that. Like, oh, it's no big deal. God made me this way. No, he didn't. The truth is, is that he's, he paid the price so that you could be set free from that. But we don't want that. There's a guy I know right now. He was a former homosexual. He gave his life to Christ, completely transformed. He's got a ministry, travels around the country teaching on this very thing. And when I tell people, and non-born-again people understand, it's like, this is what he was. It's like, what do you mean? You can't change your stripes. It's just 
But John, I'm like, that's not who you are. You're not what you're attracted to. Otherwise, Pee Wee Herman has some explaining to do. He probably does anyway. See, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, we'll end with this. It says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Okay, now let me ask you this. It's complicated. If we know we're filling the lust of the, of the flesh, how do we stop? Walk in the Spirit. Okay. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit. The Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now here's the thing. It says, these are contrary to one another. So we see a distinction. But then he says something powerful. So that you do not do the things that you wish. Is it true that your flesh wants to do all sorts of things? It is true. But apparently, according to Paul and other places as well, that is not you. Because you were bought with a price. You are a new creation. The you is the you that doesn't want to do that. Now the works of the flesh are evident. They are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. I wish I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the fruit of the flesh are all of these things. And I would venture to guess this is not an all-inclusive list. So that means that in a moment of anger, if you have one of these things take place in your life, is that of your spirit or is that of your flesh? It is of your flesh. Even if it is caused by your spouse or your child, it is of your flesh. It is not of your spirit. Verse 22, the fruit of the spirit are love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the spirit, let us walk in the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. We know the fruit of the Spirit. You heard it since you were in children's church when you were a kid. But those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and with its desires. Is that a true statement today? It's not. Because the church today wants to have both worlds. It wants to stand the line. I can have the fruit of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit because God has made me just the way that I am. According to Paul, there is a standard. According to Paul, that a born-again believer crucifies his flesh. He doesn't act like this. That's what we call sanctification. And if you do that, you will stand out. There will be something unique about you to the point that it is going to make the world hate you. Because they're not going to like the stand that you take. And you know what you don't have to apologize for? Standing on truth. You never have to apologize for that. Because you didn't make it. That's the problem we're having today. Is we've got all these words out here and we don't know why and we've got this idea of Jesus and that's the Jesus that we put out there. But it's like, wait a minute. What about the Jesus of Scripture? The one whom, whom came on this earth, lived a life as an example to us. If He is the head and we are the body, why is He so confused? It's because we don't want standards. We don't want to crucify our flesh. I don't know if you realize this, but I don't think crucifixion was pleasant. I don't think Jesus liked their hate. Let me hit that nail one more time. I like it. 
we have to get disciplined. We are His hands and His feet. We are not our own. We are His representatives on the earth. And the problem is, as you think about this, if it is true that He's the head, we're the body, seated at the right hand of God, above all principality, power, everything, every name that is named, everything that's there, that means that we have a power that we are not tapping into, and we have absolutely no excuse to not walk in authority on this earth. And one day, we are going to stand before God, and He's going to be like, what did you do with your time? And if your answer is, I got along with all my neighbors, you failed the test. That's where he's going to look and says, well, you're in. You're done. Not well done. That's what we're looking for. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that you convict our hearts of areas of which that we are missing in. Areas of which that we need to change and grow. And we can stop making excuses. Lord, I thank you that we can be your representatives on this earth. That these words are not just thrown out loosely and they're not taken in vain, Lord. That we really believe what your word has said. That we are your representative, your ambassadors on this earth, Lord. That we can live our lives in such a way that when people see us, they can't help but see you in us. And I thank you, Lord, that you are giving us a boldness and desire to live our life representative of you. No matter which way the world turns today, we will stand on truth. That we will never deny it. That we will never hide from it. And we will boldly proclaim what you have said. And so, Lord, I thank you that each and every day that we have an opportunity to share your love and your mercy with those around us, that those who are living as sons of disobedience, Lord, that they may not like what we have to say, but we'll boldly proclaim it. And I thank you that because we love them, we will not let them die and go to hell without hearing the truth. They may choose to reject you, but, Lord, we will share the gospel with them. I thank you that each and every day is an opportunity that we will not waste and we will not take for granted, that we will live our lives to glorify you in every aspect that we live, Lord, that it brings glory to your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys have a great week. See you soon.